You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to week three of Why We Worship the Way We Do. If you're listening to this on audio, I would encourage you to actually go to our website and watch this audio as it's linked with the slideshow because the visuals are really helpful for this. And so the same audio is available at adventbirmingham.org slash prayerbookclass2021. That's adventbirmingham.org slash prayerbookclass2021. Okay, welcome everybody. So glad you're here today. Really glad to be talking about this topic. We've just done a short three-week series on the prayer book in general, trying to do highlights for the main things. And hopefully as we journey through this, this actually gives you something to hang your hat on that'll be helpful for the journey. And um, I want to pray, and then I want to walk through this, and hopefully we'll have plenty of time for questions. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for this good day and for all your many blessings. We thank you for the worship service that many of us just received. Thank you for your good word, Jesus, that you are our righteousness, that you have uh, suffered in the wilderness on our behalf and been for us what we could never be for ourselves. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. And uh, we ask that you would send that goodness into our heart every day through, Jesus, uh, through your Holy Spirit and cause us to live lives of repentance in such a way that there might be fruit um, born, that there might be our ability to honor you with our lives and love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. With this class, we've got two goals of why we're doing this. That, hopes to, that helps to focus what we're doing. The first is so that, and we've said this every week, but just to recap, um, we're here to basically help us connect head and heart, because liturgy can be a real heady exercise, and sometimes the heart's checked at the door, and it's nice to be able to uh, reflect on this in such a way where hopefully as you engage the liturgy, it's not just stuff coming out of your mouth, but actually uh, something coming forth from your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the second is to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship. You know, there's a lot to say about liturgical worship and the ceremonies and symbology of the church. Their importance, in my opinion, lives or dies based on whether or not they point you to Jesus and point you to who he is and what he's done. Insofar as they do that, personally, I'm a fan. Insofar as they don't do that, I'm not a fan. And actually, that was a big part of the Reformation that we'll get to in a second. So it really is that our hope is, as you engage the liturgy, whether it's morning prayer or Holy Communion or whatever liturgy we use here, that the end result is that you're hearing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Because in my, not in my opinion, in the Bible's statement, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, my trying harder is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. The good news is not only the entrance point for the Christian, it's the daily bread of the Christian. That means I never graduate from needing to hear and believe the gospel. And in fact, all my sort of brokenness and sin is traced to really unbelief that that's not true. So as we sang today, you're my portion and you are enough. Help me believe it because I don't always. So our hope is that after today in Holy Communion, as you come to the communion liturgy, you're able to more clearly hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's at least my goal. We said the theology of the prayer book was tied to the central question being asked by people in the Reformation. How are people changed? This was a debate between 
the reformers and the, the church they were seeking to reform is how are people changed. And the reformers um, read their Bible and said, it is by a work of God in the heart. And how does God do that work? He does it through his word, particularly in the gospel. Just like we said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so summing it up, the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of worship and liturgy can be summarized in this statement. The word of God births faith. The word of God makes faith. And faith expresses itself in love of God and neighbor. So if we're talking, how do I worship God rightly? How am I going to get the sort of spiritual energy and gas to be able to give God my worship and give others my good works? It comes by the word of God perpetually coming to you and being your meditation day and night. And a worship service really is a kind of distillation of all of life in that regard. In many ways, if you're engaging a worship service properly, it's giving you the tools for your identity to walk with the Lord faithfully in the world the other six days of the week. We gave it a diagram and we said, you know, the word of God from God comes down to us and from us springs faith. And we'll return to this diagram today as we look at Holy Communion. So the heart of the prayer book is this, meaning the goal of the liturgy is to unleash the word of God to convert, reconvert your heart through the power of the gospel. That's what the liturgy is there to do. So today we're going to turn to the Holy Communion liturgy. And if you're like me and you open up one of our bulletins or any bulletin of a liturgical tradition for a Holy Communion liturgy, you see something like this. You're overwhelmed with headings and you're like, how do they all work together? How do they all fit? Because this whole thing and all those words and all this Shakespearean English is very foreign to me. And I don't know how they hang and how did they get put together in this order and what's the point? What's the point? And so you open up a bulletin from the Advent, you see all these headings and you're like, how does this hang together? Just like with morning prayer, um, it is the case that Holy Communion has a historic structure to it. And hopefully it's not just historic, hopefully it's biblical. I think it is. Um, earliest Christians started worshiping with this structure. In fact, we can go back to a document from about 150 AD and find that this general structure took place. Holy Communion had a two-part structure. The first part, typified in these from what we're calling our voluntary or our prelude, all the way through the offertory, was part one. It was called or understood as the liturgy of the word. That's the first part. The second part, starting with the, quote, communion liturgy proper, or the great thanksgiving, which is, uh, Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Starting there is often called the liturgy of the table or the liturgy of the upper room. Now something to clarify here is that even though we called that first section liturgy of the word, one of the things that the reformers would emphasize out of Paul is that we don't sort of depart from the word doing work in the second half of the liturgy just because we call it the liturgy of the upper room. In fact, if we're trying to be super technical, we might call the first half of the liturgy the liturgy of the word read and preached. And part two, the liturgy of the word in sacramental form or the word of the upper room in the sense that the same gospel, and we'll get to this in a beautiful quote from Thomas Cranmer, but the same gospel that is coming at you in the scripture readings and the prayers and the songs and the preaching is also coming at you through different means. Instead of hearing it, you're holding it, smelling it, tasting it, right? Which is wonderful that God gives us multi-sensory encounter of his word of the gospel. And you can see how, given how tactile it is and nonverbal uh, communion is, you actually need connection with the preached word so that what we're doing here is not 
nonsensical or not understandable. So again, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the upper room. And a good sort of, as you're experiencing a worship service here at the Advent, that's one of the reasons, there are some other functional reasons why we do it. It's one of the reasons why we have the welcome around this time is to sort of delineate. One thing that's a little fuzzy that I don't like personally liturgically is that we put the welcome right here, kind of after the sermon but before the offertory. The reason I don't like that, ah, we'll get to that later. I'm just gonna let that dangle. But um, okay, so we've got this diagram here that says uh, the way God changes us is by his word coming to us and we are transformed and out from us flows faith back to God and good works to our neighbor, right? That's the, the horizontal arrow that's not there. Now, the reformers were fond of a Pauline duality and construction that further exemplifies what it means that the word of God comes at us. And it's called the distinction between law and gospel. You hear this in Paul, especially in like Romans 3 or in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul uses the language of spirit and letter. And he says that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter brings to death, but the spirit resurrects. And he has this uh, paradigm for the way the word of God works. You go to a non-Pauline book like Hebrews, and it says in Hebrews 4, the word of God doesn't just speak, it's living and active. Meaning, it's important in biblical interpretation not only to ask what is the word saying, but what is the word doing to me as it's saying? And Paul says, the word does principally two things. It kills you and makes you alive. It slays your flesh, pins your flesh to the wall, and says, you need Jesus. Stop trying to earn God's favor on your own. Stop trying to live outside your identity in Christ. And that's what the function of the law is. The, the law of God that tells us the do's and don'ts of what God demands. The good law, which we need so that we can understand why it is. We need the gospel. The law is there to tell us who we aren't. It's like a mirror, as is said in the scripture. Or, as is said in Galatians, it's like a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. So that means in these two words, they're never really separated from one another. They're distinct because the law does something that the gospel doesn't. And the gospel definitely does something that the law doesn't. But both are required because the law is what drives you. Without the truth, you don't know that you're a sinner. And you don't know that you need Jesus. So the law is given by God to expose our need for Jesus. And the gospel gives Jesus to us. That's the sort of division of labor of the word of God. What we're going to find in the communion liturgy is that this word, this living and active law and gospel word, is coming at us in about four different cycles. So if we're taking and splitting up the paradigm so that we can see a few of the elements of worship, um, we're going to notice that throughout the communion liturgy, there are about four times where we cycle through this law, gospel, and faith dynamic. This is, what, this is really where I hope that it gives you ears to hear the gospel amidst the barrage. This is like giving you the forest for the trees of all those headings that we saw before. And if you want, you could be a nerd and come early to a worship service, take your bulletin and mark out these four cycles so it's a little bit easier for you to see, right? Or maybe we should print it in there, although nobody would get it because like, I need more people to listen to this class. But anyway, um, all right, I wanna start and walk us through part one. Right at the beginning of the worship service, we have something called the, the collect for purity. It's when the, the minister stands up and prays, but we pray with him or her in our heart. And we say, uh, it says, what does the collect for purity say? To all, uh, our... Almighty God, un thank you, that was enough. <laughs> Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, 
All desires known and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. If we have time, we're going to return and exegete that prayer. But what I want to say right now is that that prayer is meant to be a kind of theology of worship in a nutshell. Listen to what it says. It says what we just talked about, that the word of God is almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open and all desires known and from whom no secrets are hid. What passage of scripture is that actually from? Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing division between joints and marrow, you know, showing you the secrets of your heart and nothing is hid from its sight. That's the full part of that passage. And Cranmer and others are taking that historic prayer and laying it out at the top of a worship service saying, this is what's about to happen to you. You're about to have some open heart surgery right here. So get prepared because it's going to get bloody. All right. What happens right after the call it for purity in our liturgy? The law hits us. We have sort of two options in the prayer book of what confronts us right at the beginning of a service. And it's either the summary of the law or it's the Ten Commandments. When we're given the summary of the law that Jesus gave us, it's pretty clear what it's trying to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as itself. Now, when it uses all repeatedly, what is it doing? It's showing a mirror telling you that you have not done it, right? Which is why we say after that summary, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us, right? Lord, have mercy upon us. Because what is the proper response to the totalizing, full-throated, unadulterated law coming at us? It is just like Isaiah when he was before God. And he, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And I heard the great Sanctus. This angel's song, the, one of the oldest repeated 7-11 worship songs in the Bible. The song says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I heard that, and then what was his next response? Lord, have mercy upon me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The law does that. The holiness of God does that. It makes us cry out for mercy. And then after that, we pray these prayers and read this pa these passages of Scripture contained in them nearly always. It depends on the lectionary sometimes. So, I, you know, in a way, this is a little bit fuzzy, the way the kind of law gospel dynamic works. But there was a trust that in the reading of Scripture, the comfort and goodness of the good news of Jesus Christ would come forth. And so after the law is given and we say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, which is like a little bitty confession of sin. At that moment, we're given the words of forgiveness by God through the collect, which if you always listen to the language of collect, it's very gospel-y. It's always kind of, I don't have the ability to do something, God, but you can do it for me. Uh, and you can provide for me what I can't. That's kind of what a collect does. So it's in a way sets up the scripture readings to go, hey, Christian, listen for the good news of Jesus here. And then after we're given in this scripture cycle, right now during COVID, we're only reading one passage, but normally it's like an epistle, an Old Testament reading, a psalm, and then a gospel, just to give us a lot of reading, because man, we need more scripture, not less, in a worship service these days. Um, and then we respond, we stand, and the first words out of our mouth after, the, after this cycle of scripture is what? I believe, I believe, or because belief and faith are the same word in Greek and Hebrew, even though they're different in English, I, faith. 
I have faith. And so take that moment after you've heard the scriptures read, when you stand up to recognize that's the moment God is kind of resurrecting you in Christ, ritualistically. But you've experienced the law and the gospel, and you stand and you declare your faith in the one true God. And then what do you do? You're freed up to do some horizontal work of praying to God in the prayers of the people for things, needs, our country, our leaders, the sick people in our congregation, people who have died and their families who are grieving, disasters, people who've had babies, all the things where we list the names of people with quadrillion southern names at the advent, you know? Like, mm -hmm. that's what we're there to do, is to pray for all those things. So that's part one. We kind of cycle through that. What happens next? We sort of reemerge into a second cycle. And this is where we actually confess our sin. We say the words of the confession, which will hopefully dissect in a little bit. And then a minister stands up. And we had a great question last week about why it is in the absolution that a, a minister says these words of uh, the minister has power and commandment to declare and pronounce to his people the absolution of their sin. Uh, part of that is, we, we sort of talked about it last week, go back to it, but if you take a passage like John 20, it's another great commission, but we don't tend to talk about it much. But when the disciples were huddled in that room after the resurrection and they were super freaked out, Jesus came to them and it says, he breathed on them, he spirited on them, he holy spirited on them and said, receive the spirit, my peace I give to you. And then what does he say? What's his commission? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anybody, they're withheld. Then what he's saying is, you now have the power, Christian, to tell people about what I've done. And when you do that, when you do that, it's just like creation. In creation, God spoke words, and out of that came stuff. So it is when you tell someone else, hey, in Christ, you're forgiven. You're speaking the word that recreates them, and that creates faith. A new creation is Paul's language. Paul's very uh, theologically minded of the connection between the way God's word works in Genesis and the way God's wor word works in recreation and salvation. So speaking words is powerful. And so when Jesus says, um, I, you know, I'm giving you the power to declare through the Spirit forgiveness of sins, this is, this is a big deal. And you and I, as ministers, all of us, are given that call and that task. So anyway, after the declaration of, of forgiveness are these beautiful words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you recognize it, what you can sort of recognize in that moment is after the, the law has sort of done its work on us and we've confessed our sin, and we're headed into the gospel of God's forgiveness, the next step is that this is sort of the first moment where God's really wooing you to the table. He said, you're mine. I'm reminding you that you're mine through this confession and declaration of forgiveness, and I want you to not, it's sort of like the hymn we sang today, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so God is wooing you through these comfortable words. Now, comfortable is old English for comforting. It's not like a couch. It's like uh, words that God gives to comfort the tender conscience that's like, I don't know if I should come to communion today. I really feel like I don't, I'm not worthy of this. And the theology of communion of the Bible is communion is for the unworthy. Communion is for the sinner who knows they need it. What's your, what's your 
admission ticket to come to God? What's your admission ticket for God's grace? Your neediness. All you need to do is say, I actually don't have anything. And God's like, good, that's right where I want you. Here's everything. His name is Jesus. And that's how it works. So the comfortable words are kind of like this tractor beam to say, come on, it's okay. And then finally, kind of cool, is that we have this moment where we pass the peace to one another. It's a real horizontal moment in a worship service. And I know it's real ritualistic and we just shake hands and stuff like that. But the end game is that it's really a ritualistic version of what it looks like when, if you're redeemed and restored and your relationship is all good with God, you really don't have any issues with other people anymore compared to that great problem that is now solved by the blood of Jesus. It really does relativize our gripes and our issues and our grudges and our difficulties being reconciled to one another. And so the peace is the opportunity to embody what that might look like to be reconciled to people who are different than you. And then there's a welcome and blessing. So that's the second cycle. The third cycle is the most obvious. And here's where I'm going to tell you about why I think it, it's, it's better for you to understand the offertory as the end of the cycle, not as the beginning of the cycle. First, let me say, this is a, in the Reformation when they sort of made this move. It's not like they moved the offertory to a new location, but they kind of gave it a different identity. Because at the time of the Reformation in medieval worship, the offertory was very much tied to the beginning of what it meant to sort of ascend the communion liturgy. Why? Because it was at the offertory where believers actually brought up bread and wine. That's what the offertory meant originally. It was called an oblation. And they brought the bread and wine to be presented and put at the table. Interestingly, um, one of the concerns, it was kind of a gospel-centered concern that Cranmer and the other reformers had, was that gives the impression that I give to God before I get from him. It gives the impression that somehow I contribute something before he gives me grace. And the equation of law and gospel is very clear. And the good news of the Bible is very clear. You have nothing to bring to the table. And that is your admission requirement. And Jesus gives you everything. Any offering that you give to him, anything that's sort of given to him by way of saying, I surrender all, I give you my all, it comes in response to that gospel. It doesn't precede it because that kind of nullifies the full-blown gift idea. Because think about it. If I'm paying you to give me something, it's not a gift. It's a transaction, right? And that was the part of the liturgical overhaul that the reformers felt like needed to be really clear, is that there's nothing transactional about this except one way. It's one-way love coming to me. And anything I sort of give and offer up in a worship service is in response. It doesn't earn or grab. It is something that I get from the grace of God. So if the sermon really is doing its job, which is preaching the word such that we are given law and gospel and come away adoring and magnifying in Jesus Christ, what's the proper response to that? Jesus, take all of me. It's one of the reasons why a kind of cool symbol pre-COVID is that our offering plate makes this journey all the way from you, where? To the table up there. And it's the one reason why I can think it's actually a good reason to call that thing an altar. I don't think it's a good thing to call an altar if we think that Jesus is sort of sacrificed or re-sacrificed there. That's, I don't think that's a biblical idea. But your sacrifice there, Romans 12, living sacrifice. So it's kind of like this funny image, but imagine an usher carrying a bowl with you on it. You're just sort of dangling over there. And you get laid out on that table. 
That's the moment. And that's kind of the picture of a response to a good sermon is Jesus, take all of me. I'm ready to give you my whole self here. That's a good offertory. So imagine yourself just sort of laid out on the table and accept the good news is, Paul said, living sacrifice, not dead one. Because sacrifices up until that point were always ended up dead and didn't come back. But you get to be cut open, resurrected in Christ, and go on living. What a wonderful gift. <laughs> all right, that's kind of cycle three. After that, we begin all of the, those first three cycles, just to let you know some nomenclature type stuff. Up until the great Thanksgiving and the official communion liturgy proper, all that stuff is called the anti-communion liturgy. Not anti as in against, but anti, A-N-T-E, as in before communion. Um, and sometimes, like on Palm Sunday, actually, we are going to do the anti-communion liturgy without having communion um, because of COVID and stuff. So uh, that's part three. But now we enter, we're ending the anti-communion liturgy. And now we're entering into cycle four, the great Thanksgiving. It's probably one of the most ancient liturgical things that we say. It's one of the earliest things we find in Christians worshiping is, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. And then right after that, we sing the song that uh, is sung by the angels that we just talked about. It's a song that's referenced in Isaiah, and it's again referenced in Revelation 4 and 5, which means the couple times when believers got to see heaven cracked open, they were hearing a worship song. And that worship song was, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is a kind of hint, a theological hint there. When we sing that Sanctus, Sanctus means holy in Latin, that it's telling you, hey, in a way, as you encounter communion, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your spirit's going to be raised to heaven to be in that place where the angels are singing the song and to be, this is important, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. So when we sing this heavenly song, imagine yourself beginning to take the ascent, sort of being beamed and warped up to be with Jesus where he is, to commune with him, to dine with him, all those things. So we sing that, but just like Isaiah, Cranmer read this passage and others read, and Christians read this passage and said, there's only one thing to do in response to hearing the holy, holy stuff, and that is to begin to pray particularly this. Um, pray some prayers and finally pray the prayer of humble access, which is, we do not presume to come to this thy table, merciful Lord, trusting in, thy own, in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We'll get to that a little bit more, but recognize that moment as a kind of, I recognize the holiness of God. And it's, a, it's another moment where we double back on confessing our sin. I'm coming to this table not because I've earned anything. In fact, I'm, I'm act, he's putting us play acting in a way into the shoes of a particular episode in the Gospels where the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus seems to treat her really lame, but I think he's doing it because he's showing her He's showing everybody else around that she gets it. When she says, uh, you know, and Jesus said, why would I give you know, bread to dogs? And she said, in response to that, which really sounds like a really heavy thing for a man to say to a woman, those kinds of things. But she understood it. She's like, I, I'll totally own my dogness. And she said, even dogs get to uh, lick crumbs from their master's table. And Jesus was like, see that? 
That's what faith looks like, everybody else. Not you Pharisees who tend to try to pray your way up to God and earn your way up to God and show your righteousness. This woman actually gets it. She gets that all she has is the master's love, and that's all she needs. And even the crumbs are good enough. And so we sort of enter into her posture, her faith non-works posture, and say, I'm not worthy to come to gather up the crumbs. Because what's the acknowledgement after that? I actually get more than crumbs. I get the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself, right? So uh, after that moment, what do we do? We come to receive. We receive Jesus. See, they're really... From the moment that Jesus offers himself to us in the words of institution, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance to me. In a sense, there really isn't anything to do after that but to receive him. The old medieval liturgies filled up between that moment of what's called words of institution and reception, where we actually receive it, filled up that gap with tons of prayers. And then the Reformation, Cranmer took them all out and just said, basically, after the words of institution, just come and receive. That's, when Jesus says, I give myself to you, the only thing left to do is to receive him. After that, we pray two options for a beautiful post-communion prayer, after post-communion prayer, where the language of offering and giving ourselves to God and good works starts to come out, right? So you have the sort of right ordering of law, gospel, and faith. Now, those are the four cycles. Um, I want to stop there and see what kind of questions are churning in your mind and heart. I think there is more of a comment. Um, so I used to work at like mega church, no liturgy at all. And um, I liked it at the time, but it makes me think like it was very um, variable week to week on how much I felt like I got out of the service or, you know, we'd be like, oh, that was a great sermon today or like the songs that we sang today. So I think this format is more like no matter what week I'm coming to worship, it doesn't matter because walking through that cycle week by week, you can find something out of the cycle that's going to speak to you. I love that. And I agree. There's something just grounding in a day and age where everything's so shifty yeah. to have the, um, the power of the gospel. Interestingly, sort of one of my missions as someone who ministers to a lot of megachurch worship leaders and cares about what they do is um, I'm trying creative ways to help them sneak in what, what David Gunger calls ninja liturgy, yeah. which is like non-liturgical stuff that will make kind of evangelical folks feel like, are we turning Catholic here? What's going on? Um, <laughs> But it, it's actually this model that's worked really well to help them get their minds. Because I think you don't necessarily have to do the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. To be faithful to ministering the word in a worship service, if you buy, that structure preaches. So what I try to do, you know, like the typical sort of megachurch worship service is a string of songs, an offering, a sermon, and another song, right? What I try to encourage is take that string of songs and Build this structure into it. You don't have to lose anything about the passion and dynamism of your song set, but you know, organize it in such a way where people encounter the raw holiness of God and his word, and hopefully there's some scripture read in there. Mm -hmm. um, and then you confess your sin somehow, and 
You know, you don't have to do it with a full-blown like prayer book conf confession, but maybe it can be a song or a recitation of a psalm or something like that with a nice keyboard bed so you don't lose the, the vibe and the mojo. Um, and then, you know, in response to that, you sing and proclaim and preach the grace of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's something that I think the liturgical tradition can give to this environment that I hope and pray. And so join with me in praying for our brothers and sisters that really, you know, we're seeing the effects of the anemic nature of this being lost in, in uh, worship, in the kind of formation that's taking place and not taking place in, in some of these contexts, or what supplements are required to make sure that this gospel is clear. So great thought. I see value in it, too. And I think, I don't know, I think it's just harder to, if you're in that format, to do a sermon series on Second Chronicles and have people just really appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. Like we're we're going to walk through First Corinthians every single year, or, you know, something like that. It's like you don't ever really get to the law part. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, or sometimes they aren't distinguished enough. Right. Where you understand, what am I hearing here? And do I recognize that the gospel is what gives me the power, or am I left with law alone? Those kinds of things, yep. It is. Well, that's one of the things. That's exactly the point. Yeah. At, as in Protestantism, as the liturgy has slowly been pared down over the years, it's actually placed more. Um, it's required the sermon to do more in the worship service. Right. It's placed more burden on the sermon to kind of be everything that the liturgy was. Right. You know, which is interesting. Sermons kind of got longer, and uh, they had to carry the weight of declaring all this stuff which is in a sense what a good sermon should be able to do. But when that's evacuated, all of a sudden there's this huge burden on preachers that their sermon has to catechize, their sermon has to educate, their sermon has to provide theological um, you know, teaching and stuff like that. In addition to what a sermon's supposed to be about, which is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ from any text and driving home Jesus for sinners, right? But the sermon had to kind of bear more burden. Now, not every church feels the need to fulfill that burden. We've kind of forgotten our identity as, as the holy small c Catholic church in that regard. But um, that's, I think that's really true. Preachers feel it. So question. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a technical one, so you're right. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, so law gospel distinction is a reformation era distinction beginning with Luther, although we see it in Paul, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not articulated fully until then. Mm -hmm. This is an ancient liturgy going back to before Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. um, do you see a transformation other than maybe the omission of some excessive prayers in this liturgy? Okay. I, I guess I, I'm having a hard time buying that this old liturgy is preaching the distinction between law and law. Ah, yeah, yeah, um, that's a good that's a good way of putting it. It's not that as this liturgy was formed, I, it would be an overstatement to say that Christians who were enacting it and inserting it and putting it together, and this built over time, were cognizant of the law gospel distinction and were building it into the liturgy. I think it's, it's actually more spiritual than that. Christians were simply encountering and being encountered by the word doing that work. And as a result, it flowed out of Christians to worship God in this way. Um, I think that's a testament to the Holy Spirit's faithfulness to the church in this time, that Christians were kept 
now, over time, I mean, that's precisely, you see, the, see, the word of God is going to do this work, whether or not we understand it or believe it, whether or not I sort of know about Luther and law gospel distinction. There's no way to escape the word of God working in this way because it's its own authority and, and it just does work this way. And I don't even need to sort of be able to understand those categories to know my suffering is driving me to Jesus and I need him desperately. And that's, that's the word of God, which is living and active ultimately at work. And so if you get a lot of people who are encountering and being encountered by that word over time, it's going to be instinctual to develop encountering God this way. And it's eventually going to come home to roost when we get away from that. Although, you know, the heart is prone to wander. And so that's precisely sort of what happened in the Reformation was a, a total, it was kind of like in that, you know, when you read Ezra, and they rediscovered the book of the law, and they all were kind of weeping because they were like, God told us to do all these things and none of us knew about this? You know, all of a sudden they kind of came to, I think the Reformation was kind of like that. It was sort of, Luther had been working hard to live up to God and pray these psalms every day, and he's like, am I the only one feeling like I'm not getting any more righteous here? I'm trying to live by, and then you started to read in Paul, you are not saved or grown by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. And it's like, it's right there. The book of the law has been opened for me. And he starts shouting it, and people start kind of going, that is true, yeah. And they start sharing it with others, and all of a sudden you've got the Holy Spirit refining. And then all you start, once they grab a hold of that, they look back at these liturgies and go, that's not helpful. That's obscuring this good word that actually creates the faith that it wants, you know? So let's refine and reform. So yeah, I don't think it's that you know old Christians were law gospelly. Although interestingly enough, there's a few moments like if you read Cranmer's homily on salvation, he's quoting Chrysostom in a part where he's really doing some distinction between law and gospel work, and so does Augustine, so do a few others. I wonder if up to the Reformation, it almost mirrored what the actions of the church were doing as well. Like we have to give more, we have to atone for ourselves basically, yeah. so we're going to add in more prayers. That's right. Kind of like adds as the church. Oh yeah. Yes, I think so. At the time of the Reformation, if you were a priest ministering the, a worship service, you had to consult volumes of books. So it's even a testament to the gospel that Cranmer took all those and said, for every worship service known to man that we're going to utilize, we're going to have one thing, the Book of Common Prayer. Even the simplifying of that was a huge burden lifted. In a sense, the physical book was like a testament to the gospels, like not by works, but by faith, you know? So yeah, yeah, totally. With the disciples? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not used to like a worship service where I guess it's this pattern. Mm -hmm. You said kind of we go through four cycles throughout the service. Do you, like, is it like something where you can look at it like, the bulletin and go, okay, confession of sin, so this is us receiving law. Like, is it something where you can literally see, like, the certain text that we use over and over again and know, like, do you personally look at it and go, okay, that's the law part, and what was there after? Yeah, more or less, yes. What I'm hoping is that you start to get in tune to what word you're sort of hearing in this, what, you know, and it can be as simple as asking, if I'm paying attention to what's being said right now, what is it making me feel? It's a very grounded, earthy question. But chances are, if you answer that question, you'll know where you are. Right, right. Am I feeling condemned and a little afraid right now? Am I feeling, in the words of Luther, is my conscience terrified? 
uh, then yeah, I'm experiencing the work of the law. Am I feeling comforted? I'm experiencing the work of gospel. Am I encouraged to love my neighbor? I'm, I'm living out faith. So yeah, I mean, it's not like we have little signposts in the bulletin. Like I wish maybe we could, maybe we'll do some icons or something like that. I don't know. So a helpful way, I think, a, a really, I think, helpful Anglican phrase uh, from Latin, lex orandi, lex credendi. So how we pray is really how we believe. And so it's not so much we go to the liturgy believing first, like having you know thought, okay, law gospel. Now let me construct something. Yeah. Let let me pray this and find out what I'm believing, which is really how you answered my question, right? It's yeah. Look, look, look what the word has been doing all along, and oh my gosh, I find myself believing that I have nothing to give, and then Christ gives it to me. I love that. Yes, and I'd hate that. I'd hate for you to overthink stuff. Because, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis had this great phrase where he said, sometimes in our conceptions of God, we're like a man admiring himself, admiring the sunset. You ever thought about that? It's like, you know, in the moment when you're like doing a devotion and you're like, man, I feel really good about this. This feels great. And all of a sudden you're not reflecting on God or listening to God. You're reflecting on the act, you know? And, you know, the modern equivalent of this is like, snap, filter, woo, look at my devotion today, Jesus, you know? Um, <laughs> It's like that. It's a man admiring the sun. And I'd hate for you to start admiring the way that you're able to discern law and gospel in a worship service. I'd rather you just encounter the presence of God. You know, That's what this is about. This is charismatic, guys. Um, because when you think about if, if the word of God is God's word, and if the word of God only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, then all this stuff we're talking about is really not just words on a page or concepts, but we're talking about discerning the activity of the spirit in your midst, which is very experiential. And it's almost like I'm just summoning you to enter more deeply into what's already there and listen to it for what it is and encounter it in a way where you're going, this is not just words on a page, but this is the living God coming at me in living color. Because that's what the word of God is. It's not just words. It's living and active. So it's doing something. And in fact, it's doing something sacrificial. It's cutting you up joints and marrow, those kinds of things. What else? Yeah. Um, you kind of touched on this when you said like the multi-sensory thing, but like growing up, I always did communion as like, you know, little cracker and, and grape juice, and everyone was like, it's in remembrance. And that is like scriptural, but also yeah. it's never like flushed out like why we, li like I never understood why it is this, why is this remembrance rather than like preaching the gospel. And so like, how does this, like I've never approached it like this, like, how does the physical act of like taking communion like warm us? Like, yeah. You know? Okay, that's good. How does the physical act that's of communion? That's a. I love what you're talking about. Okay, so um, the word remembrance is a great word for communion. It's a biblical word. It's so much more loaded than cognition cognition of a past event. The a th sort of thick definition of remembrance. Read about it in the Old Testament. Um, and, and elsewhere, is understanding my identity in a past event so much as though I were actually there. Um, you get this idea when Moses was talking to future generations of Israelites who weren't in the wilderness, but he speaks to them as though they were there. He said, you remember you're wandering in the wilderness. They're like, no, that was actually my parents who died. You know, But he's speaking to them in a thick understanding of remembrance. And he's telling them, Hebrew zakar, Greek anamnesis, that's an important word for liturgy, 
Um, that's where I get my word Zachary, God hath remembered, Zachar. Um, remembrance is the idea of being so spiritually connected to the events that happened that you're remembering that you are there. It's sort of like Good Friday when we sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Communion answer is, yes, you were and are. In a way, um, our experience of the gospel in the preached word and in communion is, imagine a timeline where uh, you're right here, present, and in the past is this event of Christ being crucified. It's as though the timeline got folded over, such that all of a sudden, spiritually and by faith, you're there. You're at the cross, and you're seeing your Lord and Savior crucified, and you're also seeing yourself hidden in him as you become very members in corporate in the mystical body. I think that's what Paul means when you open up Corinthians to the passage, I can't remember if it's 12 or 14, where Paul says, is not the bread we eat a participation? Where it's koinonia, where we get our word for small groups. Is not the bread that you eat a participation in Christ? That's something more than just symbol and remembering a past event. It's being found in him, being united with him, which is why in the post-communion prayer, you get a lot of language of union in there. We being very members in corporate into the mystical body of thy son, the blessed company of all faithful people. Because there, spiritually by faith, you're being raptured by the spirit up to heaven where Christ is, and you're spending time with him. It's God's gift. It's, it's one of those means of grace where God says, if you're struggling to find me, just know you can always find me here. I give this experience to you as a reminder that you're my child. And that's actually where I want to go. I want to fast forward to this post-communion prayer. Because there are some assurances that were given at the table uh, that I hope give you comfort and a sense of spiritual connectivity. Goodness, I had a lot of this stuff. Didn't there it is. Okay. Right here. There are three assurances that were uh, given. We are assured thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us. So one of the things as you dine with Jesus, Jesus wants you to hear, is that I'm actually for you, not against you. You may have felt a little alienated from me this past week, but know that I'm actually favorable toward you. My gospel, my cross are there to declare to you, I'm for you, not against you. So we're assured at the table of that. We're assured a second thing, that we are very members in corporate in the mystical body of thy son. My identity, am I really an insider? Am I really one of God's people? The table is one of those very real places where God comes to you and says to your ear, you are my child. You are my daughter. You are my son and you are part of my church and nothing can take that away. We are very members in corporate in the mystic. And how do I know? Because I'm joined and united to Jesus with a love that won't let me go. Right? And third, the third assurance is we are also heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom. Love this one because this is a trajectory. It's what you learn at Samford. Is that communion is not only a remembrance of the past, but it's pointing to the future of the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19, right? Where... We get that. So the table is meant to be a down payment and a token that's basically saying, you're going to taste and smell and feel and swallow in part, but it will come after you 3D one day when you are dining and supping with all God's people around the table and when all your pain, all your dysfunction, all your mental illness, all your relational problems, all your 
uh, just everything about you that's broken is gone. And there's nothing left to do but party and enjoy who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's the third assurance, that the table is there to say, that's going to happen to you. That's a promise. That's as good as a promise from God. And if God makes a promise, he's going to do it because he's God. He's not like our parent that can promise something but take it away because their schedule didn't fit it. He's God who can do all things, and he promises heaven, and he promises the good news of that kingdom. So all, all is there to have that spiritual encounter where you're participating and raptured up, and it's a spiritual thing. I will confess as a Christian, I feel that deeply once every 12 times I have communion. The other times I'm thinking about something I shouldn't be, you know? And that's generous. It's probably once a year where I go, oh my gosh, I actually felt a little bit, a touch of heaven there. Well, if you think, I think uh, this is not a fully formed thought, so maybe it'll form fully later. But if we're talking about law gospel faith, I think you can see all three in just the taking of the bread and wine. Sure. Because the first communion in the upper room is at the Passover feast. So that's the law. Yep. Every year you have to sacrifice a lamb. And then the gospel portion of that is, this is my body and yep. my blood. And then in faith, we believe that someday we'll be sitting at that feast huh. forever. I love that. I want to write a journal article, or you should, about that. Because that's really good. I don't, I don't have time. I like that. <laughs> Tell your husband. Tell Tucker to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I really like that. I'm going to think about that one. That's cool. Anything else? In the end, um, I hope that you come away with communion, yeah, not overly analyzing what's happening, but paying attention and listening and receiving what is there for you. Because the Holy Spirit, who's powerful and whose word is living and active, is doing stuff to us in the middle of a service. And if we take it seriously, it is spiritual open heart surgery. Your sternum's open. The sickness, cancer of the heart is identified. And it is, uh, you know, chemotherapied out by the power of the gospel. And we're stitched back together. And there's nothing left to do but to go in peace and love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Peace out, everybody. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.